humans love an origin story. It's not enough to know that Batman has both a cool car and a high level of athletic prowess. We need to know that he is still overcoming decades of grief and abandonment issues. We have to know that his drive for justice in a profoundly unjust world isolates him from others. He'll never get married or have children. and He doesn't seem to have real friends or hobbies, pets, seems doubtful. In fact, as I'm thinking about this, I'm getting really depressed for Batman, <laughs> a fictional person, I th- I think. Someday his body will force him to stop fighting crime. It's inevitable. And then what will he have? What will he do? Okay, I'm willing to admit that I would see that superhero movie. Dustin and I have been obsessed with creating fake, dark reboots of shows and movies like Gilligan's Island and The Love Boat. And I want to see this really sad post-career Batman film. So if one of you wants to make that, feel free to take take this idea and run with it. I'm also just going to add that as far as Batman films go, I'm officially stating that 1989's Batman with a super creepy Jack Nicholson as the Joker, like unforgettable nightmare fuel, and a sick soundtrack by Prince is the only Batman movie that shall be watched in my household. Yes, Dustin and I have discussed this. He's aware of the policy. We came up with it together. And as I'm saying this, I'm wondering if Google search results of this episode transcript will result in all kinds of unimaginable hate mail from Batman fanboys. I guess only time will tell. But let's get to answering the burning question you have right now. Why am I talking about Batman? Because this is episode 133 of Close Horse. I'm your host, Amanda, and this isn't just any old episode. It's commemorating two years of Close Horse. That's right. The very first episode debuted on July 12th, 2020. And I've learned so much over the past two years about myself, about sustainability, plastic, landfills, stuff I once thought was good and now I think is bad, or at least complicated. That list of stuff that I thought was once good and now I don't know about is like a scroll. It's so long right now. I've learned a lot about social media and human nature and just so much stuff. It's been a journey to say the least. And journeys and the required changes along the way are the theme of today's episode. Happy birthday, clothes horse. In July of 2020, my life was in shambles. I had no job. My career seemed to be over. A career, honestly, that had taken priority over just about anything else in my life for years. Not because I loved my work per se, but because it paid my bills. And I had no safety net to fall back on. I never had. And now I was unhirable since the pandemic was sort of decimating the fashion industry. I was still recovering from long COVID. I felt like shit. I actually wondered if I would 
make it through this year. I was jammed into a tiny, un-air-conditioned row house in South Philly with Dustin, Dylan, and four cats. Even worse, the unemployment I was receiving was less than our monthly rent. It was scary. Like, what would happen next? The summer was brutally hot. There were flies and cockroaches everywhere because the trash wasn't getting picked up. I felt as if we were holding our breath, waiting for the next terrible thing to happen. Because surely it would come soon, even if we had no idea what it would be. Clothes Horse gave me a reason to get out of bed every day. And I needed that. In today's episode, I'm going to be telling you all about my origin story, from fast fashion buyer to Batman. No, no, not to Batman, to slow fashion rabble rouser. And as you all know by now, I am a strong believer that the personal is political. Our stories help shape the values and actions of others. I want Close Horse to be a platform for voices from our community, hence the regular use of audio essays around here. Last year, I worked with others to launch CloseHorse.World as a platform for photos and written content directly from our community. And you know what? It wasn't the right time or team for that project, and I definitely learned a lot from it, put that on the list of all the things I've learned in the past two years. Until I can build a place like that again that is better for our community that is, I don't know, more productive, I'm looking to use the podcast as that platform, giving voices to those who are often unheard. It's really, really important to me because most of us are never heard. No one heard me until I started making Clothes Horse, and it was so life-changing for me. I want all of you to have that experience too, that platform to share your stories But I also realized that if I'm going to expect all of you to share your stories, then I need to do the same. And trust me, this is not a comfortable activity for me. Way back when I started working on Clothes Horse, I told Dustin, I said, I'm going to stop making this podcast if it gets too successful because I don't want people to know how depressing and hard and unpretty and anxious my life has been. As if struggling or experiencing hard times is shameful. Well, my friends, that's how classism and sexism gets into your brain and makes you feel embarrassed for being a survivor. In 2021, I forced myself to get uncomfortable. I'm like starting to sweat just thinking about it. By recording an episode where I was the interviewee with Carrie of the now defunct World blog acting as the interviewer. It was a hard episode to make because like many of you, I've built a habit of never talking about myself, lest it make someone else feel uncomfortable or sad, or I don't know, I embarrass myself. I'm proud of myself for making that episode. And if you're interested in learning more about my background, like, like my pre-fashion industry background, where I grew up, how I grew up, all that stuff, I recommend giving that one a listen. It's episode 78. It's called This Is Not a Bootstrap Story, and I'll link to it in the show notes. In the second half of this episode, I'm going to tell you more about my sustainability journey from fast fashion to clothes horse. But first, we're going to listen to some audio essays from members of the clothes horse community. I asked all of you to tell me about your journey 
into slow fashion. I wanted to hear what made you start to care more about sustainability, particularly, but not limited to, the things you wear. What changes were most difficult? What were the easiest? How do you think slow fashion could be more accessible to others? And how do you find yourself making changes on a regular basis? Do you have any tips for others? And wow, I received so many incredible essays. So thoughtful, so insightful, so inspiring. I definitely got a little teary-eyed and sentimental as I was listening to these, just feeling so honored that all of you felt compelled to take the time to write and record something for me. I mean, ugh, no words will convey how that makes me feel. We're all going to listen to these back-to-back with musical interludes from Dustin. I did make one very amateur mistake when I asked all of you to contribute. I forgot to tell you to introduce yourselves, so note for future reference. This means that not every essay includes a name. Here are the contributors in order. Danny, or possibly Donnie, sorry (laughs) for mispronouncing your name, Kimberly, Aaron, Flavia, Paula, Lavanya, and Maggie. I'll remind you of their names afterwards as well. And of course, you can find links to their Instagrams in the show notes. All right, well, let's get rolling with the very first one. For a long time, I didn't feel any kind of motivation from within to want to mend my clothes. The convenience of getting something new if a garment ripped or a button fell off was a good enough excuse for me to get rid of it. But I think my mentality about that changed when I actually started selling vintage clothing online, which is something I've been doing for the last two years now. I don't know why that is. Maybe it has something to do with actually looking at the garment and having to assess it and put a price on it. What is this thing worth? I have a specific memory of being at the thrift store early on in my selling days and coming across this incredible leather jacket and just kind of trying it on and being like, I can't believe this is at the thrift store and putting my hands in the pockets and realizing that the button to the jacket actually wasn't attached to the jacket at all. It had fallen off and someone placed it in the pocket of the coat. I was forced to make a choice. Do I buy the jacket and try to figure out how to reattach this button, or do I leave it here? That was a turning point for me, because I had to weigh the cost of the jacket with the cost of my own time to learn a new skill. Well, of course I bought the jacket, and I went home and bought a needle and thread without realizing how difficult it would be to work with leather and that particular style of button, And after many YouTube videos, I figured out how to reattach the button effectively. Definitely took me a few tries, but I felt proud of myself afterwards. Selling vintage has exposed me to multiple experiences like this. Early on, I had a disgruntled customer who was upset that I didn't disclose that a garment I sold her had been rehemmed. And I guess it was rehemmed pretty poorly. At the time, I felt defensive, but once the initial feeling of embarrassment passed, I felt more motivated than before to try and better understand things like garment construction and everything I could about garment quality. 
I realized then it was absolutely worth the cost of my time to learn what a really good and bad hem looks like and how to fix small issues like a fallen hem or a missing button. I feel encouraged when I see a fresh face at the sewing studio coming in for their very first class. Even though I don't know that person's underlying motivations for being there, I think it's impossible to learn how to sew without developing a deep appreciation for the work that goes into making one single article of clothing. On the subject of underlying motivations, I don't really consider mending or even making my own clothes to be a choice that is driven solely by sustainability. If I'm being honest, I don't think what got me to this point was driven by a desire to be an environmentalist, which I know for some people, maybe that's been their journey. But for me, the human element is what pulled me in and made me want to try and become a more educated consumer. At the time I started my business, I was simultaneously getting really interested in the history of the labor movement. I was listening to podcasts like Sarah Jaffe's Belabored podcast and following labor rights news closely, which meant hearing a lot of firsthand accounts from workers that were trying to unionize and putting a picture together in my mind of the working conditions that people face across industries sometimes at big box companies like the Amazons of the world. I started to follow movements like fashion revolution and see the through line between the exploitation that is the fashion industry, which I was actively supporting through my own purchases, and the empathy that I was feeling towards workers at large, a force to work in horrible conditions under capitalism. Luckily, buying new things has been the absolute easiest thing for me to let go of, like a trip to Urban Outfitters or Brandy Melville after a long workday, for example. I used to be the person that would just casually stroll into a store like Urban, head straight to the sales section, and always leave with a little something. But I don't have the desire to do that anymore. It's like my brain somehow rewired itself to block those places out, like I have mental blinders on when I'm walking or driving by them. I guess those sorts of places really did need me more than I needed them. And for me, the nature of things like a clothing swap, doing a trade, reselling, or even upcycling is the type of circularity and community that keeps my love for style and dressing up super strong and really does influence how I feel, not just in my clothes, but also in body and mind. Amanda. My name is Kimberly. I'm a longtime listener of the pod, and I started my slow fashion and sustainability journey about two years ago. I was introduced to the concept of mending your own clothes through posts shared by folks on Instagram. And when I found the Clothes First podcast, all of the information I learned from you about our clothes, where they come from, and what happens after we discard them, that showed me how important it was to start mending my own clothing and slowing down my buying habits. Something I've discovered after learning how to mend is how much that act deepens my relationship with my clothing. 
I value the pieces I took the time to fix so much more now, to the point where even if I have an especially stubborn garment that seems to fall apart a bit more each time I wear it, I don't have the heart to get rid of it and will look for different ways to fix something, even if I've already tried before. In fact, my go-to pair of sweatpants, which were hand-me-down from my mom, truly seem to get a new hole each time I wear them. I've spent so much time fixing them, though, adding elastic to the ends to give them a snugger fit at the ankles, sewing patches in the butt, both the knees, and around where the fabric started to disintegrate around the waistband, where I would hold them to put them on. They're a disaster of different colored threads and patches and an ever-growing number of tiny holes, and they're one of my favorite pieces in my closet. I'm going to wear them until they are literally falling off my body. Because I love sewing and fixing things, learning how to mend has been the easiest part of my journey. One thing I have struggled with, though, is finding certain garments I really do need secondhand. I work as a farmhand, so I need a lot of clothing that is specific to that job, like insulated overalls for winter and waterproof bibs for rainy days. These aren't things that are easily found at thrift stores, and it's even rare that I would find anything in a woman's size. Even buying women's workwear brand new can be a hassle because we are overlooked by mainstream brands. I am proud to say, though, that the only clothing I've bought new in the past two years has been for work. Another challenge I've run into is trying to figure out how to responsibly rehome my work clothing that no longer fits me. These are garments I would be hesitant to donate, even if I wasn't aware of the low probability of them ever being worn by another person again, because a lot of them are quite faded or have permanent dirt stains, and I worry people would pass them by. Something I would love to see someday would be a workwear-specific secondhand market, where people could donate and buy workwear that's a little worn and dirty, but still has plenty of life. Maybe I could be the one to start that. Overall, the biggest change I've made, which I think makes it easier to adopt smaller changes on a regular basis, is unlearning the desire to consume. It's really hard. Even after I shifted to buying mainly secondhand, I was still buying more than I needed, and I had to actively resist that desire for new, new, new that has been ingrained into me. Taking part in retail therapy isn't better if you do it through Depop rather than Shein, you know? I'm still learning to be content with what I have, but it's a lot easier now that my closet is full of pieces that I bought with intention. I also like to regularly look in my closet for clothing that I don't feel excited about or wear often, and see if I can alter it so I like it better and wear it more. I recently had a big dyeing day for some of my garments that I found I wasn't wearing because I either didn't like the colors or know how to pair them with my other garments. One of the pieces was a white tank top I hadn't worn in probably a year, but I dyed it a really sweet dark brown color, and now it's my go-to top for work. I also like to embroider designs in my clothes, or sew patches that I've made or bought from other artists. It feels really good to overcome that ingrained urge to buy something new, and instead put my energy into a creative outlet that results in loving and wearing what I already had a lot more. So, that's a bit on my personal slow fashion journey. Thank you so much for the chance to share this with the clothes source community. It feels really quite special to add my voice to something that has educated and inspired me so much over the past few years. Bye! Amanda, it's Erin leaving you an audio essay in honor of Close Horse reaching two years. 
Um, for some context um, for listeners, I've been listening to Closed Source probably since it was about six months old, and I did call in a few times in 2021. Um, I left a story about my attempt to get over a clothes shopping habit um, following something traumatic, which resulted in me buying vegan leather pants that I quickly consigned out of shame. Um, I'm still listening to Closed Horse, even though I'm behind a few episodes. Um, that's because I had a baby two weeks ago, and there's no way I would be able to stay awake for an episode right now. Um, but I am looking forward to the one where you interview Dylan, especially since I've been dealing with a lot of baby stuff from well-intentioned people that are giving me their um, secondhand crap. For example, I just had to make the hard decision to throw away some of the stuff because I knew it would just be disposed of if I donated it. Um, like this baby rocker that we could not get to work for the life of us. Um, and just to be clear, I use um, my Buy Nothing group, um, my local Buy Nothing group when I can. And um, thanks to Close Horse for introducing me to Buy Nothing groups. Um, but that brings me to why I'm leaving this audio essay, which is to say that I'm really taking the progress, not perfection um, quote to heart especially now that I'm a new parent. I think when I was younger, I would fall into the trap of if I couldn't do something perfectly, it wasn't worth doing. But that's not how we're going to solve anything, um, especially the clothing crisis in the world. For example, when I found out I was pregnant um, late last year uh, and I started buying maternity clothes, I bought a lot of stuff um, secondhand online. Um, even though there were a few things that I bought new and when I did, I went for quality. Um, and I don't know why I put up with like terrible cheap stuff when I was younger. Um, but I know I'm not the only one out there who did. Um, for example, um, I did buy a um, larger bag for a hundred dollars, which I would have never done in my twenties, but this is a really nice bag it has a lot of compartments for baby stuff and also my stuff, but it also doesn't look like a diaper bag. Um, I'm really happy with it and I'm going to have it for years to come. Um, same with a couple of pairs of maternity pants that I bought, um, since comfort is key. Um, I wasn't messing around. Um, I bought them new and, um, I'm going to, um, hopefully consign them so someone else can use them. Um, I wish I could say my postpartum clothing shopping journey has been more sustainable, but I ended up buying all this stuff new. Um, that's because I was having a hard time finding what I wanted secondhand. Um, I also like time was limited since, um, you know, I didn't know when I was about to give birth, um, but I knew I needed to have some clothes ready. Um, that's because before I got pregnant, my personal style was, you know, kind of made to show off my gym bod. Um, I was in the best shape of my life <laughs> and that just wasn't going to work postpartum. So I knew I needed to get some looser fitting items, items that would support breastfeeding, but also be durable um, since I knew I was going to be scrubbing out a lot of stains. Um, by the way, breast milk stains are no joke. But um, anyway, um, I ended up buying this stuff new, um, but compared to my life before Close Horse. Um, I wasn't shopping for the sake of shopping. Um, I had a purpose. And I will also say that this is still a journey. Uh, for example, I took a chance on a new online store that priced itself on circularity and sustainability. Um, I bought a button-down romper and a couple of t-shirts. Um, but I gotta say, the quality was terrible. Um, and I'll be honest, I did buy some new things from stores that don't have the best track record when it comes to environmental and human impact. But the quality was what I was looking for, and I know that the things I bought will last me a long time. So I, I did notice this morning that I started mindlessly shopping online while I was awake and the baby was asleep. Um, and that's when I knew I needed to stop myself. So I'm hopefully, um, you know, got some stuff to get me through this period of my life um, until I'm back to hopefully fitting into the clothes I had before. Um, not necessarily because I feel like I need to get into um, my pre-pregnancy shape, but because I like the clothes that I had before I was pregnant. I hope I get to wear them again. Um, but anyway, yeah, I should mention that my son Atticus, um, he has a wardrobe that consists of new stuff that people gifted as well as secondhand items. Um, 
I think he's going to be a snappily dressed little man. Um, and I really hope we can leave a good world for him. But um, before I get emotional, that's another um, audio essay. But uh, anyway, um, thanks from the bottom of my heart, Amanda, for putting the, in the time to make Close Horse. I know that your life has changed since you first started it. You're a lot busier. So um, I really appreciate it. And um, I hope you're well. Take care. Close Horse listeners, I heard the request for audio essays and I wanted to share some of my journey. Um, Growing up, I I was not a stranger to secondhand until I managed to talk somebody into paying me um, for work at 14. Um, I wasn't able or could afford to uh, buy new clothes. Um, I wore almost exclusively hand-me-downs because that's all we could afford at the time. Um, During this period, until my mid-twenties, I typically purchased like TJ Maxx and Marshalls. Um, that was pretty much all I could afford, but I wanted so badly to avoid being teased for what I wore to school. So even being able to access brand name clothes, even if they were a year out of fashion, it was something I valued. Although I was buying fast fashion, I did take care of my clothes and really wore them until I got as much use out of them as I could. But in retrospect, it was still fast fashion. One day in grad school, I looked back at photos over the years, and I realized that most of the clothes I wore, even though I took care of them, were no longer in my closet because they didn't survive more than 20 washes or so. This dovetailed with, at the same time, learning how to crochet and knit, and then during the pandemic, sewing. These skills made me realize that making clothing is difficult, Making clothing is a skill, and it takes time. I began to appreciate more and more the labor behind the clothing and started looking into how to be a better consumer. I began to learn about our, yes, our clothing trash heaps in the global south, the growing problem of microplastics, and how our plasticized clothes were contributing to that with every wash cycle. I realized then I didn't want to take part in that buy-wash dump cycle that was killing our planet. These days, I only buy what I need, I mend what I have, and I make what I can. My biggest struggle right now, what's hardest for me, is being able to afford clothing that is made ethically and sustainably. I understand why it costs what it does, and I value it at that price. But as someone making barely making a living wage in my area, With debt to pay, it's difficult to rationalize buying an item of clothing that costs more than my entire monthly budget for food. So for now, I've minimized my consumption, I buy secondhand first, and I mend to last. For things that don't fit perfectly, I opt to take it to a local tailor before looking to donate it or throw it away. And one day, I hope that I will be able to be in a financial position to incorporate high-quality, sustainable, and ethically made clothing to my wardrobe. Um, My tip for people, if you're having trouble rationalizing ethical clothing costs, humor yourself with an exercise and try to make that item of clothing yourself. I think as you're ripping a seam for the fifth time, you'll begin to get closer to appreciating and understanding why ethical clothing costs what it does. Amanda, thank you for the opportunity 
to let us share our stories. And thank you so much for running close horse and sharing everything you know with us listeners every week. major aha moment for me was when I saw some videos on YouTube that talked about fast fashion and its environmental impact and they also showed the actual conditions garment workers were in. In the back of my head I always knew that the clothes and shoes that I wear were made by people in third world countries and people around me knew that too but nobody ever questioned whether that was right or if there were any issues with that. The last time I bought from a fast fashion brand was summer 2020. I had just finished my final exams at university and I wanted to treat myself for it. A few months later I decided that I would no longer buy from those brands but I didn't really know what my alternatives were so for about a year I did a no-buy period. I was tempted from time to time but I deleted all shopping apps from my phone, unsubscribed from brand newsletters and started unlearning everything I thought was true about fashion and the clothes I wear. I never really was the type to go shopping often, uh, especially because I didn't even have the financial means to do so. Uh, and I always had my own style, or at least I bought things because I truly liked them, not because everyone else had them too. So I guess that going from buying clothes to the three times a year to zero wasn't that hard for me. After all, the pandemic was still going quite strong at the time and I wasn't going out in general, so I didn't feel the need to buy new things anyway. The whole transition in my consumer mindset went hand in hand with a sustainability and environmentalist awakening and it really felt great. It still does. I strongly believe that the choices that I make each day align with my values. In fact, I quickly realized that fast fashion and feminism are bound to each other. I identified with the garment workers because they were women, young women, just like me. And I know that I would never accept such precarious working conditions. And there's a lot of privilege behind those words, I'm aware. And that's why I stopped supporting those brands that I love so much. During my no-buy period, I also learned a lot, not only about the environmental issues of fast fashion, but also about fabrics, how they are produced. I found my authentic self. For me, fashion was always about expression. I like quirky, unique, colorful items. And I love the 70s, so I also learned about vintage fashion and in fact, the end of my no-buy period was marked by a visit to a vintage sale. Probably the most significant change in my mindset was realizing the actual price and value of clothes. Before, I would always go for the cheapest deals. I prided myself in having found extremely cheap clothes at Zara, which everyone regarded as expensive, and the irony of this memory truly feels like a knife being stabbed into my gut. I'm not ashamed of my fashion past, I still proudly wear those clothes because it's the most reasonable thing to do after all. 
I think that the best thing to do in order to change our fashion habits is to remove ourselves from anything that could lead us to impulse buys. So influencers, brand pages, shopping apps, newsletters, anything. That alone is going to make you much less prone to buying things you don't need. The slow fashion movement might not be accessible to everyone, but I think we could say that the fashion movement in general isn't accessible to everyone. So just do your best, do what you can and embrace it. The whole purpose of this movement is to slowly consume fashion and you've surely got quite the amount of clothes in your wardrobe anyway. Not repeating outfits is for people without a personality that constantly need to reinvent themselves. And remember, it is also a political choice to embrace slow fashion. It could even be considered a radical choice against an oppressive, capitalistic and patriarchal system. You have the power to change things, so why not do it? Fellow slow fashionistas, I wanted to share a couple of my thoughts on slow fashion and sustainability for this audio essay. So talking about my motivation um, to care about sustainability, I think growing up in uh, South India, we, at least back in the day, most of our clothes were um, stitched, tailored. And we probably got four sets of clothes a year, one for birthday and the rest for festival. So we learned how to take care of our clothes, mending and repairing um, was uh, very normal. I mean, we all all had um, sewing machines or at least a repair kit. So I think going back to the roots is what uh, led me towards sustainability again. And um, obviously, this is not an easy path. There are some changes that are really easy and some of them are really hard. I think really hard is letting go of a lot of um, ideas. I think it's mostly mental that I should not buy anything which uh, is not going to last for a very long time or just because it's a beautiful color or or oh I don't really have this style anymore and just fill up the closet and I think uh, that's a very big challenge for me right now but I, the easiest changes was to just wear whatever is in the closet um, yeah that that's I think that everybody can do that mix and match um, doesn't really matter what uh, anybody else thinks it doesn't have to be color coordinated so I think that could work for uh, other people too. I do that a lot. And slow fashion can be accessible to others by making, mending and repairing and sustainability accessible to everybody. I think right now sustainable clothes are expensive, out of reach for a lot of us. Even to me, I cannot afford to pay $200 for a linen dress. But I think we can also buy secondhand, normalize secondhand um, clothes, wearing, shopping, normalize shopping at the thrift store first. 
and I, I'm sure uh, we'll end up changing our minds about fast fashion and how I find myself uh, making changes on a regular basis well it's really hard you constantly have to be mindful about the changes that you make but my advice would be take it slow I mean it's um, a lifelong process it's a learning curve you don't have to make all the changes in a single day you know you can't quit cold turkey whatever is happening before um, all the clothes shopping and the shoe shopping and the matching belts. So I think you should take it slow and not... Um, you don't be so hard on yourself if you can't do it easily, but it's definitely worth it. Um, we have each other to take care of and the planet to take care of. Thank you. My formal introduction to sustainability was in college, where I learned a ton about feminism, intersectionality, and the impact human beings have on the planet. Growing up with limited financial means meant that thrifting was really my only access to clothing resources for much of my life. It carried a lot of stigma in those days, and I internalized much of that until my teens, when I discovered thrifting as a way to express my unique personal style. As I continued to self-educate on the fashion industry and grew into my former marketing career, I started seeing more clearly the intersection of sustainability and style. It wasn't just about thrifting for me, but doing more with less all around. I began doing more research and getting clarity around my core values. I grew increasingly frustrated with the messaging coming from the fashion industry, like, there's no such thing as enough. There's something wrong with your body. The key to happiness is to buy, buy, buy. And I consumed a ton of information over a period of years about garment workers' rights, the pitfalls of our global supply chain, and capitalism. It wasn't so much an aha moment as a progression of learning, and really learning by doing. Then I took that learning and built a business around it to help others embrace sustainability in their own work and lives. Together, we seek to make more intentional, informed, and mindful decisions around what we wear. And ultimately, we align those choices to our core values. Beyond that, we also consider sustainability in a broader context. How can we maximize the resources we have, reduce or avoid waste, an increased return on our investments, which could be time, emotional and intellectual energy, financial resources, all of it. One of the most difficult changes for my personal style clients to make is to unlearn and dismantle their historical understanding of our relationships with clothes. It takes a lot of internal work to consciously decide to make different choices. I've worked with clients who have experienced shopping addiction, for example, falling prey to Instagram ads for fast fashion. Other clients have never taken the time to consider the life cycle of their garments beyond the time spent wearing them. 
For some, they feel overwhelmed and pressured to transform overnight and adopt a zero-waste lifestyle immediately. In all cases, I gently remind them to take things one step at a time. I practice that in my personal life as well. For me personally, one of the most difficult changes to make was responsibly donating my unwanted garments. Not the act of donation itself, but learning and self-educating about the thrifting economy. Finding out the majority of clothing donations end up in landfills forced me to confront my past bad habits. I cannot tell you how many garbage bags and boxes full of clothes and shoes I've packed up in my lifetime and dropped them off at large corporate donation centers without even a second thought. By learning more about the donation process and how clothing resources are distributed, I adopted a more sustainable approach. Instead of dropping things off without thinking about where they'll end up, I look for ways to match those clothing resources with the people who need them most in my local community. Instead of taking them to corporate donation centers, I curate them and I donate through my local Buy Nothing groups, shelters and organizations that support survivors of domestic abuse and intimate partner violence, shelters and organizations that serve people experiencing homelessness. I make phone calls, send emails, connect with small, privately owned thrift stores who may need inventory that I can help backfill with my donations. Of course, yeah, it takes more time and effort, but it's worth it to know those donations are going back in circulation versus being tossed away. One of the easiest changes I made was to stop shopping new or retail for any and all clothing. There are, of course, a few exceptions, undergarments, even sometimes shoes. But in general, I don't shop retail anymore at all. Even for common household things I might need, I look to the secondhand market first before other options. The more I learn about what I sometimes call big fashion and the retail supply chain, the easier it becomes to think before I purchase something. It also has engendered a fierce commitment not to support brands and companies that don't align with my core values. If I can't get it secondhand, my next stop is small businesses. I want to know that my hard-earned dollars aren't lining the pockets of corporate retailers who don't give a shit about me. You know, the household names who prioritize profit over people. For slow fashion to be more accessible, I think it starts with the consumer. In particular, educating them and helping them understand the bigger picture of fashion at large. That puts the responsibility on people like me, stylists, sewists, pattern makers, designers, as well as individual brands and businesses, to empower consumers with information. The average consumer today has a false sense of value when it comes to clothing in particular. They don't think about much beyond the price tag, and if it's too expensive, they won't buy it. I think it's going to take a major shift in mindset, especially in Western cultures, to help people see clothing as an investment rather than a disposable commodity. In order to start that global discourse, we need transparency from everyone in the supply chain, We need access to more data. We need to change how we think about clothing. 
I see every day as an opportunity to be more sustainable and every small change adds up. That's what I tell my clients and it's exactly how I operate in my own life. Instead of paying attention to fashion trends, I shop my own closet. I challenge myself to style things in multiple ways and to embrace re-wearing my favorite garments. I've expanded my network to include alterations and tailoring professionals, mending and repair professionals, and professionals who can customize garments to fit my style and my body. That's something I would encourage everyone to do. Get to know tailors in your area. Before throwing out a garment or donating it, consider whether it can be repurposed somehow. If it's damaged, consider repairing it. If you love your garments, make them last. The other piece of advice I'd give is to eliminate the term retail therapy from your vocabulary. It is so problematic for so many reasons, not the least of which is that it perpetuates overconsumption and the narrative that buying more will make you feel better. Hear me now, shopping is not therapy and it does nothing to address the underlying issues. Thank you to everyone who took the time to write and record these amazing audio essays. I found myself nodding my head just right along over and over again as I was editing them. Like, yes, yes, you're so right. So many great insights and ideas here. And I hope that you see a common thread to your life and your experience. I am so grateful to have the opportunity to present them to you. In order, they were recorded by Danny, Kimberly, Erin, Flavia, Paola, Lavanya, and Maggie. I'll be sharing their Instagram accounts in the show notes too, so please go give them a follow. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. 
But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. I really hate icebreaker activities in team building exercises and networking events. If you know, you know. And the one that always freaks me out, fills me with just abject terror, it seems so innocent on its surface, is the classic, here's a fun fact about me. I never know where to begin there. Like, what makes a fact fun? What is fun about me? Yes, I'm a very funny person. I am. 
I'm also super clumsy, so you might get the added hilarious bonus of watching me trip over something or walk right into a wall. Oh my gosh, the number of walls I walk into on a daily basis. I think I'm just always in a whirling dervish or something. Is that a fun fact? I run into a lot of stuff because I'm always moving at top speed. I don't know. Is that fun enough? Is having five cats truly a fun fact? Or is it a statement about the way people abandon pets, <laughs> right? Is saying that I love to cook fun as far as facts go? Or is it just a relief to hear that I have accepted that I will need to eat and therefore cooking food will just be a regular part of my life? I don't know. I always end up saying I have a Hello Kitty tattoo, which I don't think is particularly fun as far as facts go, but at least it gives an indicator of who I am and what I'm into and maybe implies that I'm a little bit fun, right? (laughs) So here are some basic facts about me that are neither fun nor unfun. Okay, some of them might be a little unfun. I I would say they're overall pretty neutral in terms of their fundamental funness qualities. I grew up in rural Pennsylvania in a variety of tiny towns. We moved a lot because my mom was married and divorced a lot. I think at one point I kept count. I'd gone to seven or eight elementary schools, maybe more. I don't know. It's one of those facts I've like that's not so fun that I've deleted from my brain. I had cancer as a small child. And just recently, my new doctor here in Austin said to me, This was life-changing. She said, that must have been a really traumatic experience for you. Have you ever talked to a professional about it? And you know what? It was the first time anyone had suggested that to me. Maybe suggested isn't the right word. Maybe stated is better. None of the adults in my life as a kid ever acknowledged that it might have been a frightening or damaging experience To have cancer, to be very sick, to go through a lot of scary treatments that you didn't understand and spend a lot of time in the hospital by yourself. Instead, my cancer was presented always as a feel-good story about how lucky I was to be alive, always followed by an intimidating statement about how it meant that I had to do something special, maybe even important, with my life, rather than squander all of the money and medicine that had gone into saving me. No, no pressure there. (laughs) This is a great time to mention that for most of my life, I have actually felt embarrassed admitting that I had childhood cancer as if there was some shame to be found there. Our brains, or at least my brain, is really good at making me feel bad about things outside of my control. (laughs) Is that a fun fact? Maybe that's a fun fact right there. I'm putting it on the list. (laughs) Can you imagine someone saying that in a work meeting? Anyway, moving on. More facts. I'm going to level with you. My childhood was pretty terrible and traumatic. We were poor. My mother did not and does not love me or even like me. I lived in a variety of trailer parks and apartments with a steady flow of new stepfathers and traumatic experiences. All the bad things that can happen to unwanted children who are poor, well, they happened to me. I can look back and say, wow, I really bore the consequences of the decisions made by the adults in my life. I'm still unpacking that now, and I don't want to go into too much detail about all of that, but if you want to hear more about it, you can go back and listen to episode 78. But I will say that all of my political and ethical beliefs have been shaped by that childhood and the people around me. Poverty destroys people. 
even if they have enough food to eat and, and some kind of roof over their heads, the destruction is just slower and less obvious, but just as destructive. Despite all of this, I've always been an overachiever. I'm smart. I soak up information really easily. I'm a good problem solver. I love thinking about things. I'm a hard worker, and I won't stop until I figure out a solution. As a teenager and a young adult, I really struggled with bipolar disorder and substance abuse, but on the surface, I probably seemed like a real go-getter. I have had straight A's my entire life, except for one marking period in eighth grade, where I got an 89, which is a B plus in science. That's who I am. I'm an A student, even now, I think. When I was 23, we're fast forwarding a little bit here. My partner, Ryan, died of a heroin overdose. He was at that point and really for a very long time, the love of my life and the most magical and beautiful person I had ever met, have ever met. This would have been devastating enough on its own, but to make matters more, I guess, tragic, he died just a few months before our daughter Dylan was born. I don't think I've ever been a bad person. Sure, there were times I was immature or drowning in my own ennui, but I was nice. Yet, Ryan's death, Dylan's birth, that small period of time right there, it changed me forever. I've always maintained that if you like me, if you think that I am a good, kind, thoughtful, positive, inspiring person, you should know that I became that person, the one you know right now, that year when all of that happened. It's hard, so hard, to even think about the years after Ryan died. They come to me in flashes and I know that there were some good memories in there, but I also remember how fucking hard everything was then. I was a single mom with no money, no financial safety net. My student loans were in default, no social network to help me, and I was in so much pain. I kind of had to jam all my grief into a closet in the darkest corner of my brain in order to keep going. I had been storing all of my pain in that closet for so long. All the bad things that happened when I was a kid, all the scary times when I had cancer, it was all in there. And now there were bills to pay and diapers to change, a kid to raise and jobs to be found. Surviving ate up approximately 99% of my mental capacity. There wasn't room for anything else. I specifically remember dropping Dylan and my mom off at the airport. They were going to visit with one another for a few weeks. And I was take I took the bus back to my suddenly child-free apartment and I just collapsed on the futon to cry because it was the first time I had been alone with my feelings in a really long time. Like I I remember that moment and I think the last time I'd cried was a few minutes before Dylan was born when I realized what everything that was about to happen and that had happened and that nothing was going the way I planned it. And yeah, I didn't cry again until Dylan went to visit my mom a couple years later. It's kind of crazy to think about holding all that in, but I think I'm sure there's some of you listening to this who know 
sometimes that's just how it is. Some of us are really good at that. When I say that we're good at it, does that mean I think it's good for us? No, but we're good at it nonetheless. Okay, let's talk about role models for a little bit. I personally did not have a lot of adults in my life that inspired me outside of my teachers. I'm so grateful to all of them. And yes, I was always the teacher's pet. I think, I see this now at least as an adult, that they knew I had so much potential, but I wore my difficult home life on like a badge on my chest, even if I didn't know it. By high school, some of my teachers knew I was effectively homeless. I'd been moving from one friend's bedroom floor to another. And so my teachers drove me to work, paid my college application fees, gave me lunch, books, encouragement. These were the adults that kept me going. If you're a teacher and you're listening to this, I promise you that your students are grateful for you, even if they can't articulate it right now. Teaching people is so important to me, I think, because the people who taught me were so good to me and helped me keep going. Outside of my teachers, I, of course, like all of us, looked to celebrities for role models. That's obviously a dangerous proposition for sure. Madonna was my first role model, and I wore black lace fingerless gloves to school every day in third grade. Must have been quite a look. By high school, it was a stew of alternative icons like Winona Ryder, Drew Barrymore, Kathleen Hanna, really any woman in a band who was cute and tough. And that meant also Courtney Love. Now, if you're here to accuse Courtney of killing Kurt or say that Kurt wrote all of her songs or she's a monster or whatever, well, maybe fast forward through this section. I'm just going to say that I really, really identified with Courtney Love as a teenager. She had a really fucked up childhood. She knew the kind of pain that only people like us knew at a young age. As an adult woman, she got to feel ugly and fat every single day of her life because particularly in the heroin chic Kate Mossness of the 90s, Courtney Love couldn't help but feel that way. She was probably like, what, a size 8, a size 10? Wouldn't have mattered if she was a size 20 or 30 or 40. But this was the climate that the 90s were. And I mean, let's be honest, has that climate changed at all? Maybe slightly. It didn't help that the media and every Nirvana fan pointed out how unthin and undesirable she was and how ugly she was or how her dress was too small or she had acne. What a crazy What a crazy thing to have acne, right? And I saw myself in Courtney Love because I was never going to be Kate Moss thin. Even if I starved myself, which I was doing and did for a really long time, I was never going to be beautiful. I was definitely going to have acne. And people were going to come to me and tell me that I was ugly on a pretty regular basis. As a side note here, a few weeks ago, I was talking to Dylan, yes, that Dylan, my child Dylan, about how every time someone wants to be a real troll to me on Instagram, they go right for the jugular, telling me that I'm ugly. Every fucking time. And Dylan said something so smart, it made me so proud to be their parent. They said, that's how emotionally unintelligent people handle conflict. They can't think of something smart to say, so they go for the lowest, most hurtful thing they can imagine. And I'll tell you, no matter how smart you are, no matter how capable, uh, 
being called ugly still hurts. <laughs> Even when you're a grown adult who has been through worse, it, it, when people send me messages like that, it works. I'm admitting that here publicly for all of you to hear. Anyway, this is not a Courtney Love podcast. And also, Courtney Love makes mistakes. She says dumb shit. But these are things all of us do sometimes. After Ryan died, I found myself looking at Courtney Love again. Like, how did she survive losing Kurt in this enormously public way, dealing with the wrath of the whole world, or so it seemed? Because I was a nobody, and yet I had people implying that it was my fault that Ryan was dead. Either implicitly stating that I had directly killed him, even though I was 1,000 miles away when he died, or I had taken him by the hand and led him to that heroin overdose just by being pregnant. Ryan's mother, a woman who had been introduced to me as the wacky fun owner of Decatur, Illinois' premier balloon and stuffed animal store, a woman who would show up at the airport dressed as Dolly Parton with huge balloons in the chest of her jumpsuit. Uh, Ryan loved telling me that story. This fun woman <laughs> told anyone that would listen that I was a white trash whore who had destroyed her son's life. And strangers on the street implied as much to me with one guy, a total stranger, literally asking me, how does it feel to be a drain on the system? A guy I was dating at one point said to me, you're like a pair of slightly irregular pants at Ross Dress for Less. I couldn't afford you before, but now that you're a single mother with a dead boyfriend, I get a chance to date you. If I were then who I am now, I would have told all of those people to go fuck themselves. But instead, I just took all that bullshit, all that ugliness, all that cruelty, and I stuffed it into the closet with my grief. The closet was getting fuller. Now I had to use my entire body weight to close that door, but it was still contained. And instead, I leaned into this lyric from a whole song. I, at this point, I hadn't listened to Hole in a really long time, and I kind of had a brief kick where I was thinking about Courtney Love and listening to Hole again. And this one song lyric, it's from the album Celebrity Skin, and the song is called Reasons to be Beautiful. She sings, it's better to rise than fade away. The world wanted me to fade away after Ryan died. His family, they certainly hoped that I would slip away one night to meet him in oblivion. Our mutual friends definitely thought my living days were numbered. You know, I ran into a friend in Chicago years later, and he kept saying, I just can't believe you're still alive. My mom definitely wanted me to give Dylan to her and disappear in one way or another. But I was going to rise, not fade away. Maybe all that propaganda about having to do something special with my life because I had survived cancer was having a positive impact because I was not, not going to just give up. I was going to get through this. I moved to Portland, Oregon when Dylan was one year old. I had a few hundred dollars in my checking account and no real plan, but the snow-capped mountains and enormous trees felt so alive. The air smelled and tasted like life, and I needed all of the life I could get if I was going to keep going. Over time, I got a part-time job at a big fast fashion retailer. I was paid about $1 more than minimum wage. My hours were inconsistent, but you know what? It was something. I worked hard because I had to, and soon I became a department manager. 
A full-time job with health insurance made me practically wealthy by early aughts Portland standards, but I think I was being paid about $28,000 a year, barely enough to pay rent, daycare, and food. I still couldn't afford the bus, much less a car, and strangers knew me around town as the girl with a baby on her bike, but I made it work. And little by little, I was coming back to life. I had friends. I had an amazing, magical child. I fell in love. I laughed until I peed my pants. I made incredible memories. I met so many people who I now consider my family. I felt kind of adrift, though. Working retail kind of sucks. If you know, you know. And it wasn't a great long-term plan. The company I worked for was particularly brutal and exploitative. All of the salaried employees, like me, were expected to work a minimum of 50 hours a week, and some days were 12-plus hours long. The benefits were minimal, and nobody protected you. A customer hit me, and I got written up. At one point, I filed a sexual harassment claim and was told things like that wouldn't happen to me, quote, if I weren't the way I was. I thought about going back to school to be a nurse or becoming a teacher because teachers meant so much to me and had such an impact on me. I was going through all the plans, trying to figure it out financially, filling out applications, and then something really unexpected happened. After a walkthrough with some executives from the home office, I was recruited to move to Philadelphia and work on the buying team. I had no idea what buying entailed, but I knew it was a career. And a career was necessary to give Dylan a better life than I had. A career was our ticket to the middle class and all of the trappings that came with it. Heat in the wintertime, because currently I only turned the heat on in Dylan's room and I slept in a winter coat in my bed. It meant trips to the dentist and the doctor and no more months-long ear infections for me. A car, vacations, college for Dylan, it meant we would be okay. So here's what I'll say about the early days of my career in buying. At first, it was confusing and lonely, mostly because I was the first person to come to the home office from the stores in more than 10 years, so people already were not interested in getting to know me. They assumed a lot of probably really classist things about me. Then it became fun and interesting as I got into the groove of it and found my niche. And then it was, well, it was a job. I was an outcast from moment one because I wore thrift store clothes instead of comb de garçon. I didn't have a fancy loving family that took big ski vacations or spent Christmas in Cabo. I never told people about Dylan because I knew they would judge me. And I hated the inevitable pitying look that always followed my response to the question, where is her father? But I was also an outcast because I read books, because I cared about politics, because I cared about things and thought fashion was sort of silly. And listen, I love clothing. I love personal style. I think that what we wear is a precious creative expression. And I want everyone to have that opportunity. But I also hate the seriousness, the self-reverence of fashion, the delusion that fashion is glamorous and more important than everything, that somehow every day we're saving lives, we're not. And trust me, working for a fast fashion brand only underscores how fashion is an industry and a business and less an art form or creative expression. If 
If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of April, St. Evans is supporting United Farm Workers Foundation, mobilizing farm workers and their organizations across the country to advocate for more equitable policies. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are 
paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans, and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the eternal city. Discover more on Instagram at The Pewter Thimble. Over the years, I worked for several really iconic brands, all of them following the fast fashion model of convincing customers to buy as much stuff as possible, as often as possible. And I'll tell you this, I am a really talented buyer. I'm great at understanding what people want before they themselves know they want it. I have a great eye for product and trends. I understand why people shop and how to get them to shop more. I'm also exceptional at managing the financial and analytical side of it. I can shape overarching financial and product strategy. I'm not exaggerating when I say I could teach a master's level class in buying and branding. And yet, all of these jobs made me sad, no matter how good at them I was. Sometimes it made me sick, certainly stressed out and exhausted. But why was that happening if I was so good at it? I guess it was a few things, and it's hard to know where to begin. I guess we'll start with the actual art of buying. Over time, it felt less creative and less satisfying. We were no longer taking the time to create cool product. It had to come as fast and cheaply as possible. None of it was special anymore. And so we were always running, always rushing to get the next delivery finalized. Seriously, I felt like I literally had to run to use the bathroom or grab lunch, lest I miss one minute of a new trend or business decision. It was just a constant feeling of franticness. And soon it felt as if we were buying the same stuff as everyone else, because that's what our executives wanted us to do. Nothing felt special or intentional, just cheap, fast, and profitable. Definitely disappointing. Next, these jobs did not pay well. Sure, I was making more than I did as a department manager working retail, but not that much more. My first buying job paid $32,000 a year to live in a city that was cheaper than New York City, but not that cheap. After bills, I would have about $10 a day to live on, including meals and subway fare. Yet I would go to work and manage a business worth millions of dollars. And I remember at that time, there was a lot of drama going on within our office because people were stealing one another's food out of the refrigerator. And honestly, I look back at that and I'm like, it's because everybody was so fucking broke. Like, unless you were like in a high level role, you were not making a lot of money there. You certainly were working an awful lot. Over time, I made more money, but I swear 
And I know every guest who's ever been on this podcast will agree with me. This industry will always try to get the most work out of you for the least amount of money. Raises rarely happened unless you went to another company. And even still, you were paid just enough money to get by, but never enough to truly save up to leave or find another job or go do your own thing. I mean, ostensibly, I guess we were underpaid for the privilege of working in the oh-so-glamorous fashion industry, even if it was just a chain of mall stores. They kept us all pretty desperate financially, which made us willing to take on ridiculous workloads and sacrifice any semblance of work-life balance because we needed that job, no matter how terrible it was. And the cultures of these companies, with the exception of ModCloth, which was a truly nice place to work, the cultures of these other companies, they were toxic. So toxic that there has to be a worse word for it, and I just don't know it yet. So if you know a word that's worse than toxic, send it my way so I can use it in the future. We're talking daily humiliations at the hands of executives. We're talking sexual harassment, disparaging remarks about your body and appearance, screaming, throwing things, company-wide emails about bikini diets that we all ought to try ASAP. Emails and texts from your boss all day, all night, seven days a week. Welcome to the glamorous world of fashion. A permanent pairing of stomach aches and headaches. All so we can churn more graphic tees and faux leather jackets, all this forgettable stuff, out into the world. Even worse, a few years into my career, I started to develop some concerns about the ethical and environmental impact of my job. Like when I fully understood what was happening, I began to feel very alarmed. I felt very conflicted about helping these companies make so much money. We canceled orders right and left, even if the product was already made. We did this for any number of reasons. Our sales plan changed, which reduced our budget, an executive changed their mind about what we were buying that would happen so often. The strategy would change. Seriously, someone would come by your desk, see a sample, hate it, and make you go cancel the order, even if it was supposed to ship next week. <sighs> I always wondered to myself as this was going down, what's going to happen to the people working in the factories? Will they still get paid if we aren't paying for the order? You and I both know the answer there. And there was the constant pressure to copy other designers and brands. We're going to talk about that more in an upcoming episode. But in my experience, if you were unwilling to copy someone else's work, you weren't a moral person. You were just uncreative. Yes, a boss really said that to me, called me uncreative because I wasn't coming up with enough things to copy. And that's the kind of stuff that ruins your career, in fact, I came years later, I was up for a different position and someone reached out to her for a reference and she said I was uncreative. And you know what? I didn't get the job. Over time, the product we were making and selling was getting worse and worse. And I couldn't help but wonder where it would all end up. Why were we making clothes that could only be worn a few times? Shoes that would disintegrate if they got wet. Bathing suits that weren't actually intended to ever be worn near a pool or ocean or any body of water. Not even a bathtub. It was enough to keep me awake at night. But nonetheless, I had work to do. And so all of this worry, these kinds, this kind of like ethical queasiness 
I just jammed that into the closet with all of my other trauma and grief. It's not like I was going to ask those questions at work. I would have lost my job. And so the best thing to do was just pretend I didn't have those questions at all. But with each job, I felt more disillusioned than the previous. My first employer was a pretty blatantly evil fast fashion company that loved copying small artists and designers and did not care at all about any of its employees. I knew that the hard way from working in the stores, and I assumed that they probably cared even less about the people making the clothes they were selling. But I thought maybe I could work for brands that had a mission. That might be more meaningful for me, right? I started working at Nasty Gal in the hashtag girlboss era, thinking that maybe working for a feminist company would be better. It was actually even more toxic and unethical, and the stuff we sold was even worse. (laughs) Then I joined a small feminist brand based in Portland. Surely that would be better, but no, somehow it was even more unethical, and it made me feel even sicker. And at least at the previous companies, I had health insurance. This job didn't even have that. I forget about taking a sick day or a vacation. It was it was horrible. It was making me sick. It was such a disappointment. I felt powerless. I was a cog in a machine that would keep grinding away with or without me. At least if I was there, I could make a living, right? But I had no control over my life, and I had no power to change anything, and I just felt stuck. I remember having a meltdown specifically one morning. Dustin was taking me to work, and I just said, I can't do this anymore. It's like I'm stuck there because if I don't, then we don't have enough money to survive. But if I keep going there, it's just another day of suffering and being bullied and being stressed out and seeing bad stuff happen every day that I can't do anything about. And I, that conversation was shocking for Dustin because I'd never I'd never said any of that out loud ever. I don't even think he knew I was having a bad time at work. And this was like a year and a half into that terrible job. Over the years, I noticed something happening more and more. I was I was scrolling the internet in search of something new to buy to cheer myself up with, and I would do it every day. I would order a bunch of things, receive them, and then return all or most of them over and over again. I felt cheery for about five minutes after I placed the order, and then I was depressed, maybe even more depressed. I ended up with a literal closet jammed full of things I didn't care about. And it was like I needed those tangible, disappointing clothes to distract me from all the real problems jammed in my figurative mental closet. It's hard to say if I was fully happy or fully unhappy during those years. On one hand, work was brutal and depressing. And as I moved up the ladder, as technology made it easier for work to access me at all times, work bled into my personal life more and more. I still had amazing friends. I traveled. I read books and worked on cool stuff. I met Dustin and we got married. But after a certain point, it felt like work was always consuming most of the oxygen in every room I entered. In 2018, I quit the horrible feminist company and I felt like I could finally breathe again. My replacement, ironically, came from Victoria's Secret, which felt particularly comedic to me, still still makes me laugh. I started working as a consultant, helping small businesses, sustainable businesses, ethical businesses, women-run businesses. I had a lot less money, 
but it didn't feel bad because I had no desire to buy things to cheer myself up. I felt pretty good. But then my first employer came a knocking. Did I want to move back to Philadelphia and lead the buying team for a new sustainable rental brand they were launching? I don't know why I took that job. In fact, there's a whole whirlwind series of interviews. And at one point, they wanted to fly me to Philadelphia to interview a few people. And this was like on a Wednesday. And I said, well, on Tuesday morning, I am leaving for Japan and I'm going to be gone for two weeks. Uh, So can we do it after that? And they said, no, like we need you right now. So I ended up doing some crazy thing where I flew there on Sunday night. Monday, I interviewed in their office all day. And then I got on a plane and flew back to Portland. Dustin picked me up. We went home for a few hours and then we left for Japan. And the experience in Philadelphia was so horrible. Um, I was walking around the campus and I was like, right, this place has a weird energy that I never really liked. No one here is, I don't know. It's not that there are bad people working there, but the culture doesn't really empower or enable people to be kind to one another. Um, and most importantly, I'd had this, my last interview of the whole thing with this woman who is like one of the creative leaders of the entire parent company. And she's notoriously just like so fat phobic. Like she can't even like look someone who's over a size four in the eye or like acknowledge them in a meeting or anything like that. And here she had to sit down with me and my size eight ass and ask me questions about my experience. And I could just tell she was disgusted by me, hated me, didn't want to hear anything I had to say. The interview was so awkward and horrible. And it left a bad taste in my mouth. I flew back home thinking about it and... The next day, as we're getting on this plane to Japan, I turned to Dustin and I said, I don't want that job. And he said, that's fine. And I was like, cool. But a month later, I took that job anyway. Maybe it was more like six weeks later because I expected I would hear from them while I was in Japan. I didn't I didn't hear from them until like it was like sometime in November. Uh, and then they wanted to offer the job to me. Um, but it was different than what they'd originally interviewed me for. And... I took the job. I don't know why. I guess it was money. I don't know. We moved to Philadelphia, and I knew it was a mistake right away. The company culture was far more toxic than I'd ever remembered. The company itself seemed to be even less ethical, even faster, lower quality, all the bad things. To be honest, maybe it was good for me in my like journey of clothes horsing <laughs> to see how the fast fashionification of everything had impacted this place that I'd worked for a long time to see how they had changed their processes and strategy since the fast fashion era. My coworkers all came from significant generational wealth. And I felt for the first time in a long time, super ashamed of my background, like seriously, more than I had in years. The business itself wasn't as sustainable as it seemed. And I was way too experienced and talented for this job. Like it was really, really bad. I was depressed. I was lonely. I didn't make any friends. And I found myself buying more new clothes than ever. And then returning them all, of course. In fact, I was so desperate for some kind of positive feelings at some point in any day that I signed up for multiple rental subscriptions on top of everything else. No matter what I wore and how many compliments I received, I felt worse than ever. By January of 2020, I was crying 
every morning before work. Work was just unbearable. A lot of the people I were working with were really not nice, really hard to work with. I saw a lot of bullying and no one would do anything about it. And it just just wasn't right for someone like me. Dustin was driving me to the office every morning, even though I was capable of driving myself, just to sort of be there to make me feel better. I decided that month that I was going to work as hard as possible to save up money through that year. Unfortunately, some crazy medical bills and other crises during my time at the horrible feminist company had destroyed us financially. So we were catching up. I think that's why I took this job now that I'm thinking about it. But I was going to save up money and we would leave at the end of the year, maybe moving out to Lancaster County. We talked about starting our own store. It'd been like a dream we'd had forever. To be honest, I still want to open the store in Lancaster County that we've dreamed up. But then it was March 2020. As the coronavirus began to seem like a real threat, a few things happened. First, the week I was supposed to travel to Los Angeles for a trade show, the city of Los Angeles declared a state of emergency. That happened on Monday or Tuesday. I asked my boss if we could cancel the trip because I was, I'm going to be honest, I was frightened. I was hearing scary stories and I have an autoimmune disease, probably linked to having cancer as a child. And I didn't, I didn't want to get sick and die alone in a hospital just because I had to go look at the fall deliveries. My boss assured me that I was being paranoid and silly and that I should just go. And I was like, okay, fine. I, my team was stressed out. I told them it was going to be great. We were going to be safe, blah, blah, blah. But by Wednesday, we canceled the trip. Thursday, we were told to go home and try working from home for a day. The president of our brand assured us that no one would be laid off. Everything was going to be fine. I never worked in that office again. I spent the next two weeks working from home, canceling every order we had written for the rest of the year. I'm talking from like late March deliveries all the way through Christmas. Even if these orders were already on the way to the warehouse, they were already made, no matter what state of production they were in, all canceled. Sales reps called me to cry. Vendors were freaking out. I'm sure factories, I can't even imagine. My team was unsure what to do, but pressed ahead. There were mornings all I did was talk on my phone, one call after another with a sales rep or vendor or production person who was begging me not to cancel. I expressed some concern about the ethical and financial implications of canceling everything, only to be brushed off and told that this was what everyone was doing and it was just part of business. After all of the orders were canceled, I was furloughed. No one else from my team was. And it felt, I'm not ashamed to admit this, strangely personal and hurtful, despite the pandemic. I was one of the original employees. I had hired and trained the rest of the team. I had convinced the vendors and brands to work with us. I had helped build all of our processes. Three months later, in the last week of July, One week after the first episode of Close Horse was released, I was permanently terminated. I received two weeks of severance and five, five whole days of health insurance. To receive this incredibly ungenerous package, I had to sign an agreement saying I would never publicly or privately speak ill of the company. A week later, that company announced a surprise. That was the, that was the adjective surprise. Profit of $34 million for that quarter. 
that profit was almost entirely made of canceled orders and unpaid wages to workers all around the world. This, I suppose, is the moment I donned the bat suit and got down to business, except it was more of a cottage core floral print dress, probably found via an eBay search for Liberty House dress. That's my favorite vintage brand of dresses. The door of that closet of bad feelings that I had just been jamming closed for years, it just flew open and it could not be closed again. I cried so much. I thought about ending my life. I wondered how I could ever get it together and go on. And yet, I did. I remembered. It's better to rise than fade away. It was time to fight. I'd already started this clothes horse thing, and I knew it was time to go even harder, to speak the truth about the industry, to educate others, and to hopefully build enough of a and to hopefully build enough of a community to make some serious, real change in the world. And here we are, many episodes and two years into it. I realized pretty early on in the life of Clothes Horse that I wanted it to be different from the other sustainability and fashion content out there because I wanted it to be for all of us who have felt relatively invisible to the regular fashion industry and, of course, the sustainable fashion industry by default, whether that was because of our socioeconomic background, our age, body size, body type, or personal aesthetic, so many of us are never seen or heard. My biggest goal for Close Horse has been empowering others to take charge, realize their power, and get excited about making change. And I guess that's why I'm always reminding you that it's progress, not perfection. We, we have so much power as consumers, workers, friends, role models, and super rad human beings that matter to other people. We can turn things around. We can get others on board. And we can most certainly get it done. Over the past few years, my life has changed a lot. I moved a few times. I did get another job finally. I acquired more cats. I met lots of amazing people. I learned a lot about myself and the world as a whole. I learned to understand and appreciate the gray area between good, bad, and to be okay with things being complicated and difficult to figure out sometimes. I've learned that anything worth fighting for is worth putting in the work. That doing the right thing often requires more effort and time. And that perfection is the enemy of progress. On a personal level, I started line drawing all of my clothing. I adopted a secondhand first way of life. I always shop secondhand before opting for something new. And you know what? I buy a lot less in the first place. I've reevaluated my relationship with makeup and beauty products. I've I've cut out a lot of impulse purchases. And I'm always finding new ways to cut plastic and packaging waste out of my life. When I look back at where I was in February 2020, I feel proud of where I've gotten and how much I've grown and learned. And I'm excited about all of the new stuff that I will learn and get to think about in the future. 
I'm grateful for all of you who have shown up week after week to listen to me talk, to comment on my Instagram posts, to make me feel like my work means something. Thank you to all of you for keeping me going during some very difficult times. Clothes Horse would be long gone if it were not for all of you and your support. All of you who have rated and reviewed via Apple Podcasts, trust me, that has impact. Those of you who have chosen to support my work via Patreon are literally paying to have this podcast hosted, captioned, transcripted, etc. Thanks to them, I've been able to acquire a scanner, Photoshop, and pay the subscriptions to all the sources I use for information. Thank you so much to all of you who have helped keep this afloat, especially when I was just racking up credit card debt to make this podcast. I'm grateful to all of you who have recommended this show to a friend or shared my content on social media or sent interesting ideas and adorable cat photos and Hello Kitty stuff my way. Without all of you, Close Horse is just me talking into a microphone with all of you. It is a community and hopefully part of a larger movement. Like this is just the beginning. Together, we really will change the world, making it better than it has been. Together, as a community, as a movement, as a collective of passionate, caring, smart people, we will rise, not fade away. I am Amanda Lee McCarty, and this is episode 133 of Close Horse, the podcast for people who love clothes but hate capitalism. A special, super big thanks to Justin Travis White, my husband and best friend, who has patiently mixed every episode of Close Horse, no matter what massive recording error I've made. He created all of our music. He helped me iron out the early visual branding. And most importantly, he taught me how to edit audio and use Photoshop. Close Horse would not exist without Dustin. And I feel so lucky to have scored big time in the life partner department. I'll be taking next week off because I have a bunch of work travel coming up, but I'm thinking about doing a special Instagram live next weekend to take more questions about my journey from fast fashion to clothes horse. Bye.